0: pray together. Jesus, we are hungry for your word and nothing else will do. So any of my words this morning that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But May your word remain and in us may it bear much fruit. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Have any of you ever heard of someone named King Henry VIII? Anyone? Infamous. He is uh, no doubt the biggest blight on the Anglican tradition, particularly for his, shall we say, complicated marital life. And yet, even as he unfortunately presided over the Church of England in the 16th century, there were those who stood against, really, his evil leadership. The Anglican bishop Hugh Latimer, he once uh, preached a sermon before King Henry VIII. And after the sermon was over, and I, I will say that those sermons were much longer than any you've heard here at Living Faith, I promise, After King Henry uh, heard the sermon, he was so ticked off by the boldness, the audacity of the things Latimer was saying that he ended up telling Latimer that he must come back the following Sunday and preach a more acceptable sermon and then apologize for what he had said in his first sermon. Now, just to remind you, uh, if you're not sure who King Henry VIII is, look up, uh, you know, go to Wikipedia, you'll, you'll find all the details there. But let's just say he's a guy who was not afraid to end some relationships. You know, he was happy to put some peeps down if needed, and this included his second wife. Uh, so talk about an intimidating situation that Latimer found himself in, and one would think that you know this would cause him to, to change his tune. And Henry was counting on that, right? I'm going to come back to the story at the end of the sermon, but what I want you to take away from this context is that of intimidation. This is an intimidating scenario, right? We can all imagine what that would be like to be in Latimer's shoes. During um, the season of, of ordinary time, we are preaching through the, the series, uh, series on the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And just in the last three weeks, as we've looked at Acts chapter 3 and 4, we've really been talking about one overarching narrative, a story that involves Peter and John, two of the apostles, uh, a lame beggar, and then religious leaders. And in chapter 3 and 4, we saw how Peter and John were put into jail by these Jewish leaders, and the reason that that's where they ended up was because as they went to the temple one day and they saw this lame man uh, begging, they they had the audacity to to look at him and then to heal him, right? And to make it worse, they didn't even take credit for it, but they gave credit to this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who was a man that the religious leaders had helped put to death in the not-too-distant past. It was upsetting to them. Now, of course, these religious leaders, having kept them overnight, they ultimately realized they couldn't keep Peter and John in custody for crimes such as this, right? Especially when you consider how many people in Jerusalem were hearing the message and then believing. Luke tells us there were about 5,000 people. If you're a government official, that's, that's a mob. Don't mess with the mob, Right? So all they could do was to threaten Peter and John, to intimidate them, to tell them, you may not speak or teach about Jesus anymore or else. Right? And that... Context, the scenario of intimidation, that's where our passage picks up this week in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. We've had that read for us just moments ago. I'm going to read that verse by verse as we go along this morning, but I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, I know there are Bibles also in front of you in the seat backs, uh, please take, take a copy of the scriptures. Let's open to the book of Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, and follow along with me as we go. I'm going to start off with Verse 23. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. All right. So Luke tells us that Peter and John, they go home to their friends. And I love that he describes them that way. And, he, and Peter and John, they tell their friends what had happened, what had taken place. And although we aren't told exactly who these friends are, we are right to assume that these are the other apostles and the other believers who were closest to them. But what we need to recognize in just this one verse is that this is a very dramatic turning point in the life of the church. And here's why I would say that. Although the disciples weren't exactly popular while they were following Jesus around during his earthly ministry, this is the first time they were popular punished for following him. Right? Something has changed. We see what Jesus told his disciples begin to take place, where in John 15, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Here it is. What was told to them has come to pass. And this thread of persecution, which emerges in this passage, in this context, we will see that weave throughout the entire story of Acts and indeed throughout the whole New Testament that theme of persecution. So, given this dramatic turning point in the life of the church, how are these people going to respond? Let's look, let's see what these apostles and believers do in the next few verses, verses 24 to 26. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I'm going to cut their prayer off right there. There's more to come, but let's just look at this first half. When they hear the report from Peter and John, what do they do? What's their first thought? To pray. I find that conflicting. Do you? And yet back in my first sermon in this Acts series, I said that one of the characteristics we're going to see about this peculiar people, these early believers, was that they were so reliant on prayer. And this is playing out in the passage before us. So the very first thing they do is they lift up their voices to God collectively, and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Now, why are they opening their prayer this way? Why not our Father? Why not Lord Jesus Christ? Why are they acknowledging God's control over everything to start? Well, because if God is sovereign over all he's made, if that's who he is, then he must be sovereign over these petty threats from a group of misguided rabbis, right? And so first of all, they remind themselves and in some ways, they're reminding God, remember God, you're sovereign. God's sovereign. And second of all, they continue in their prayer by recalling the scriptures. They, they quote the very words of the psalm, Psalm 2, in which David asks the question of God, why is it that the Gentiles and all the peoples and kings and rulers of the earth, they all conspire and unseat the God of the universe? Why is it that they try and do that, oh God? So, why do these believers, why do they bring up that passage? They're they're realizing, they're they're coming to the, the understanding in their own context God has always had enemies. David had enemies, Jesus had enemies, we have enemies. No surprise. They shouldn't be surprised that Jesus and his followers would have enemies who want to hurt them because humans have been rebelling against God and what God wants to do in creation for a long time, let's just say. And so this is exactly how they proceed in their prayer. They begin to recite to God the ways in which they are seeing humans rebel against God in their own context. Verses 27 to 28. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had sent his son, the anointed, to redeem the world, and yet Herod and Pilate. And the Gentiles, and yes, even God's people, the Jews, they all conspired to bring Jesus off the throne, to pull him down. They couldn't shut him up, and so what did they do? They killed him. They killed him. And yet the wild thing is that the sovereign Lord accomplishes his purposes through the murder of his son. How crazy is it? that humanity would ever think we could unseat the sovereign Lord. And so in recognizing these things, they're rehearsing these truths to one another in their prayer. And so they then, they turn to the Lord and they make a request. Lord, based on these things, we see in verses 29 through 30, now, Lord, because of these things, look upon their threats, And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I find it remarkable that the very first thing these early Christians do is pray. That's wild to me. But second of all, it's even more remarkable to me what they pray for. You see, they they do not mention safety. They do not ask God, please protect us. Lord, stop them from threatening us. Don't you care about our safety? They do not ask God to give them revenge. Lord, crush them. With the measure that they persecute us, persecute them. None of that. They don't even ask God to convert them, which is kind of surprising. Like, Lord, turn our enemies into friends. No, instead, they, they have one simple request for God. Please give us boldness in the face of intimidation. This is peculiar. Give us boldness, oh God. Now, this Greek word, which is translated boldness in English, <clears throat> What it means is, is, on the one hand, without fear, and on the other hand, uh, without hiding anything, without glossing over or trying to make something more palatable and appealing. And so there's two parts to this boldness. There is confidence, on the one hand, not being afraid. But on the other hand, there's also this, this desire to speak with clarity, to not hide anything, to lay it out there, so these believers, they do not want any threats or hardship to affect their confidence and their clarity in proclaiming the gospel message. Oh, Lord, give us boldness. Now, why not try any you know, number of other things to try and psych themselves up? I can, I can think of a few. And When I was in high school, uh, we had a, a football team ritual. We're in the locker room before every game. We would listen to "I of the Tiger, and we'd get jumping around, you know, hitting each other's helmets, and we got pumped up. We're ready to go play. Or uh, what about this? You know, my, my TV tells me that if I'll just drink Tecate or eat Doritos, I'll be bold. That's easy. <laughs> I, could, I could do that all day, right? Now, that's what I would do. Those, those are the things I would do if I'm trying to pump myself up, and it's not what they do why? Now, I know they didn't have Doritos or Takate, but that's, that's not why. What they know is that boldness for the gospel, it's not something we just try and stir up from our own personal wellspring of courage. That's not what it is. It's a gift from God. It comes from him. I mean, this is why the last thing Jesus says right before his ascension is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. Bold witnesses because of a bold spirit. That's why, right? And so they pray to the very God who sent his spirit on Pentecost. God grant us boldness. While you continue to do the things that you're doing in the world. Stretching out your hands to heal. And performing all sorts of signs and wonders through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. This is peculiar. And what happened? What happened as a result of their prayer? They didn't have to wait very long. That's cool. Verse 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. Now, these believers, they, they had started their prayer by, by saying, Sovereign Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. And they asked him to give them boldness. And so what better response, what better sign for this God to give than to show his sovereign power by shaking the very earth he made? Right? He's giving them a physical, visible sign of the spiritual reality of boldness. Now, if you're thinking that this moment looks a lot like Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, you'd be right. Because these believers they get this sign of God's power. The earth shakes. And then they get this fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, what we see in the book of Acts as a whole is that Pentecost is not so much an event, a one-time deal. No, it's it's a rhythm of moments where the people of God are praying to the Lord and putting their faith in him and God is sending his spirit and filling them up. And they pray and God fills them up. And they pray and God fills them up. And this is pretty much as it is today in our lives as believers, where once we put our faith in Christ, it is not like we just received the Holy Spirit one time, a one and done filling. No, we are to constantly seek the Lord that he might fill us up again, fill us up anew, fill us up anew for the things that you're calling us to do in the world. And so the result of of being filled with the Holy Spirit, what we see in this context is that these believers, they they got what they asked for. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They they got the confidence and the clarity that they sought. I want you to listen to what the 4th century church father, John Chrysostom, says about this passage in Acts. He says, since it was the beginning of the apostles' ministry, And because they had prayed to God for a sensible or a a visible sign, great was the encouragement they received. In fact, they had no means of proving that Jesus was risen except by miraculous signs such as these. Thus, it was not only their own assurance that they sought, but they also sought that they might not be put to shame out there. He says, The place was shaken, and that made them all the more unshaken. Unshakeability. Not a word, but that's what boldness is. (laughs) Unshakeability. This week, as I've been reflecting on this passage and asking myself, well, what does this have to say to believers in the 21st century? What does this have to do with us? How does it impact our lives? What I think this passage raises is a couple of questions that we are to ask ourselves and to reflect upon. The first question is this. Who do we believe is in control? Who do we believe is in control? You see, uh, the healing of the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3, it's one of the very first things that we see Peter and John do post-Jesus' ascension, right? And what do they get for performing this first miracle? What do they get? Jail time. Jail time and an ultimatum. It's a tough gig. I mean, I'd, I'd rather start with a, you know easier crowd. Would it be fair to say that Peter and John are in control of their circumstances at this moment? I don't think it would be. I don't think they're in control. They're not the ones calling the shots, right? I mean, if they were, they would have at least avoided the jail cell part, right? I don't know about you. I like control. I assume you do too. When we read this passage, are we to understand that following Jesus and that even more so being a Christian leader? It doesn't provide us with the right to have control over our circumstances. Is that not part of what we get in salvation? Control? I think that's exactly what we should understand. It's difficult to be in control when you're nailed to a cross. And yet Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. See, these apostles, they they lived this truth. That following Jesus is about relinquishing control, not gaining it. Adam and Eve's first sin, it was to try and wrest control from the sovereign creator so that they could do what they saw fit with their lives. And this is what we do. And thus it means that the work of redemption that Christ has, has accomplished, it is meant to allow us to acknowledge the one true God again and then subsequently to die to ourself that we might be found in him and in his sovereign control. That's what redemption is about. And so as believers, who is it that we believe is in control? If we're following Jesus, it's not us. It's not us. It's never meant to be us. It's always meant to be God. Do we believe it? Peter and John and these believers, they did not cry out to God as if to say, God, we are are trying to follow you. We're doing what you command. Why are you letting them persecute us? They don't say that. They say, Sovereign Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Dot, dot, dot. When we face hardship, especially for following Christ and being obedient to Him in the face of of whatever is out there in our society, who is it we believe is in control? Is God in control of that? Does God will that? Listen to what the Apostle Paul, who I promise faced greater suffering for the gospel than, than any of us likely ever will. Listen to what he says in Romans, a very famous passage, but it's about the context of suffering for the gospel. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's about persecution as much as it is anything else. And that's encouraging. God is in control, we have nothing to fear. We need to believe it. The second question that I think rises out of this passage is, how is it that we respond to threats and persecutions? How do we respond? See, the, first, the 21st century is not that unlike the 1st century. It's not that different. The book of Acts, it takes place in a cultural and a religious and a political context in which there's just a whole spectrum of diversity. And the message of Christians, it was not looked on favorably by anyone not by the Jews, not by the Romans, and not by any of the peoples and the nations that the Romans ruled. And so there was persecution. Of course there was. Now, the intimidation that the earliest believers faced, that kind of thing, it's likely to increase for us who live in Western plural societies. Even as Christians in places of the world, like the Middle East or in Asia, are severely persecuted for believing in Christ today. And that persecution, it's going to manifest itself in a few ways, and it does this. At best, we might find in our, in our culture that the gospel of Jesus is met with lukewarm approval. That's really nice for you. Just don't tell me I need to believe that. We might also find apathy, just indifference. You know, I, I, I really couldn't care less about what you're saying. I'm busy. I've got too much I want to do. I just don't have a reason for that religion thing. In those moments, I think we need to get some tougher skin. And we need to be able to accept the discomfort of rejection. This is kind of small potatoes. We need boldness in those moments. And yet, increasingly, we are going to find ourselves facing outright opposition Passionate opposition. People who do not like the message of the gospel for any number of reasons. Whether because Christians believe that all humans are sinners and can't save themselves. Whether we believe that that Jesus is the only way, truly the only way. Or because we believe that Jesus is the one who tells us how to live and not us. There are people who will not like these things will not want to hear them, and will want us to shut our mouths. And there are people who would declare the gospel, the gospel, archaic and even intolerant. Now, as an aside, I want to say that um, what I've observed is that Christians in the West often seem to develop this kind of victim complex. You know, we, we used to be in the majority, um, and now we're not. And so we're feeling oppressed by the growing secularity and pluralism of our societies. And what I see is that there's this us-against-them mentality, that they are out to get us. Now, the first thing I would say about that is that I think we need to revisit the first question, and that is, who do we believe is in control? Who do we believe is in control? Did God somehow take his hands off the wheel? Is that why we're in the minority now? No. No. The peoples of the earth have always conspired against him. We should get used to it. The second thing I would say is that when we are rejected or threatened by people in our society, we need to be sure that the reason we are rejected or threatened is actually the message of the gospel. Peter and John, they they healed a man, and then they preached the story of redemption. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save sinners and he was crucified on our behalf and he rose from the dead to conquer death and he ascended into heaven, but he's coming back to restore the world. That's the gospel. They didn't like the supremacy of Christ and they didn't like the resurrection of the dead and so they put him in jail. That's how it should be. But sometimes Christians are opposed or even persecuted in society, not for that gospel message, but for a lot of other things. What I mean is that sometimes people are turned off to the church and to God, not because of Jesus' gospel, but because of us. Because of child abuse scandals, and cover ups, and, and warmongering in the church, and racism political syncretism and greed and power-hungry leaders and Christians who don't keep the sexual and marital code of ethics that we preach and all sorts of other hypocrisies that turn people off from the one true God. We need to repent. We need our hearts to break about the reasons people leave Jesus, that have nothing to do with Jesus. So that we can recover the integrity of the gospel and let Jesus be the stumbling block and nothing else. Jesus is the stumbling block, Jesus. Theologian, Michael Green, he writes, I am persuaded that nothing but transformed lives, transformed Christian lives will be able to intrigue and attract a generation that is bored with religion and cynical of our pious talk. Love will do it. Lifestyle will do it. The manifest power of God will do it, where the beyond comes into our midst and deeply touches those who would not even admit to believing that there is a beyond. That's boldness. What is clear from this passage is that whenever threats or persecution for the gospel of Christ come, we are to respond in those moments with prayer and with a receptivity to the Spirit of God. And so this passage, it makes us question ourselves, are we a praying people? Are we a people relying upon God's power through His Spirit? If we don't start there, we need to at least be honest that we are departing from the example of the apostles and from Jesus himself. And I would much rather imitate them. Amen? The third question this passage raises for us is, well, what then does boldness for the gospel look like for us? How are we to be bold in the environment which we are in? When we pray, when we experience God's power, we should expect to receive the same kind of boldness that these Christians prayed for. But what does it look like? What does it look like? Listen to what uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who was a student of the Apostle John and became the first bishop there in Antioch, listen to what he writes to the churches about those who were vigorously persecuting them at that time. He says, allow them to learn a lesson from your good works. Be meek when they break out in anger against you. Be humble against their arrogance. Set your prayers against their blasphemies. Do not try to copy them in requital. Instead, let us show ourselves their brethren by our forbearance. And let us be zealous To be imitators of the Lord. Man, that sounds biblical. Because it is. See, boldness for the gospel, it's not abrasiveness or disrespect, it is not thoughtlessness or impulsivity, it is not arrogance or superiority, and it's certainly not violence and conquest. If we do these things and we claim boldness as our excuse, we are wrong and we don't have the spirit of Christ. What boldness is, is the confidence to speak about Jesus with clarity and with charity, no matter who we're talking to, no matter what power and influence they wield, no matter what they can do to us. Boldness is the unshakable trust in the God who can shake All things. It is as the psalmist says if the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? My brothers and sisters, it is not God's will to remove threats and persecutions from us. It's not his will. Read the New Testament. I promise you won't find it in there. It is also not his will for us in the face of persecutions to acquiesce and run away and build Christian enclaves where we can be safe. Neither is it his will for us to be outraged and domineering and take back what's ours. No. What God wills is this, that we his servants would continue to speak his gospel with boldness and let God continue to do his redemptive work in the people around us. This is first century stuff. And this is our call. And so I want to return now to to Hugh Latimer, right? He'd been given this ultimatum from King Henry VIII that he should preach a second time and then apologize, for the things he said in the first sermon that King Henry VIII didn't like. Well, the next Sunday, Latimer came faithfully before the king, and after reading his sermon text for that day, he began his sermon this way. Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life. If thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore, Take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. Latimer then preached the same exact sermon he preached a week earlier. This time though, just a little bit more passionate. That's boldness. It's also a bit cheeky, uh, but it's definitely boldness. Now, most of us aren't preachers. It's not what we do. It's not what God has called us to do. And none of us, I assume, will ever stand before a monarch who can execute us. So what environments do we encounter in which we need this kind of boldness? What are the places, the environments, the contexts in our lives? Perhaps it's with your boss who might demote you if he truly knew what you believed. It could be with your neighbor's who in finding out who you are and, and the truths that you hold might really not like you. It might be a thorn in your side as, for as long as you live next to them. Or what about your friends? They may legitimately unfriend you when they hear what you believe. Your family members could disown you. It's uncommon in this culture, but it's so common in other cultures. Where is boldness needed in the 21st century? Boldness with clarity and with charity to speak the words of the gospel, which can bring redemption to this earth. Where is it? Wherever we experience opposition for the message of the gospel, it is through prayer and God's Holy Spirit that God will give us the confidence to speak with that clarity and charity no matter who we're talking to, no matter who we're talking to. Amen?